As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back. Episode, fuck, I can't remember the name or the number, but <laughs> I do know that out of parts one and two, this is part two of our poly class coverage. That's important. Yeah. I had a 50-50 shot. <laughs> I got it right. <laughs> you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Half the time, it works every time. <laughs> okay. So when we left off, Last time, we found out that the police have a name now, so we've got a suspect, and it is Richard Allen Davis, and he is was determined to be the person that was trespassing on Dana's property, um, badass Dana with a baseball bat. He's very particular. All right, so who is Richard Allen Davis? Davis had a long history of law-breaking, violent behavior, and kidnapping. And if you guys haven't listened to, I do know this episode, number three, that was the one where we did, like, I think I called it the path of a serial killer, but it we talked a lot about kidnapping, and we looked at, was it two or three different... I think it was three. ...cases of people who had been convicted of kidnapping and then went on to become serial killers... They were, like, let out on good behavior and stuff like that. So It's like a gateway crime. I really feel like it is. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that kidnapping... Now, again, this was, like, in the 70s where a lot of this stuff, his original crimes happened, Richard Allen Davis, but I really, really, really fully believe that kidnapping... I mean, it... I don't know. I know there's different variations, like, technically a parent who picks up a kid from daycare and maybe they're divorced and they didn't tell the other one like technically that can be considered kidnapping like but I'm talking like true abduction taking somebody against their will holding them committing whatever atrocities to them while you've got them that is so serious and he only served eight years for his kidnapping so he had at this point been paroled on June 27th 1993 and that was after his eight-year sentence for kidnapping. And there's, we'll kind of give you a summary of the, the other crimes. So he had three second-degree burglaries in 1973, 74, and 76. In September of 76, Davis was arrested for the robbery, kidnapping, and assault with intent to commit rape. Hmm. In 76, he faked a suicide attempt, and 
an escaped prison going on a five-day crime spree. So here is a guy who he tries to get out of prison at any chance he gets. He does get out. And what does he do while he's out for five days? He goes and commits all these other crimes. So it's not like he was trying to be a reform I don't know. Yeah, it's he's not living a peaceful life while he's out. He just wants to be out of prison. Like he's he's got yeah. uh, he's got motives. He's got um, a plan. He wants yeah. to still create mayhem. And he wants to fuck shit up. Yeah. So I don't know. Just he was like limp biscuit break stuff. Exactly. It's just one of those days. One of them days. In 1978, he was again arrested for robbery, kidnapping, and assault with a deadly weapon. In 84, he was again arrested for armed robbery, kidnapping, and assault with a deadly weapon, including a firearm. And in March of 85, he attempted an armed robbery. See, and I feel like for him, the the line of the crimes where it's like, Every year, or sometimes multiple times a year, he's committing all of these crimes, and they're like, okay, slap on the wrist, like, quit doing that, that's not nice, like, yeah, and he's still doing it. Yeah, this reminded me of Wesley Allen Dodd a lot. Yes, like, slip through the cracks, Mm -hmm. nobody takes him seriously. Yeah, because it was, he was committing the same type of crime over and over and over. We've got, how many times did we just say kidnapping? Over and over and over. What does that do but escalate? It's aggressive. Yes, it's very violent. It escalates. Eventually, it's not enough to take somebody. Eventually, it's not enough just to rape somebody. You're looking at somebody who is going to commit a homicide. I know that's kind of like minority report-ish of me or whatever, but, you know, I'm a podcaster. Well, so I know what I'm talking about. Exactly. We're experts on all of this. Yeah, we started this shit in a room in my house, so I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) But, I mean, you know, it's like, I, I know that a lot of people who are, like, fans of true crime or whatever will, you know, throw out theories and whatever, but... I just, you see these patterns, and in this case, it does go on to change a lot of laws, and laws against repeat offenders is one of them. So, it's just, it's sickening when you look at how many times he did get arrested, and he got caught. It's not like, it's not like once he gets caught for this, that then we learn through confessions that like, oh... That kidnapping and that rape, like, now we're tying it to him. We knew when he did it that he did it, and he went to jail for it. But somebody who is a repeat offender over and over and over, especially with these violent crimes, and they keep getting out, and now look what happens. We have a missing 12-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. So the arrest photo of Davis matched the description given by Kate and Jillian, and Davis's mother lived in Petaluma, which gave him reason to be in the area. The items found in the woods were sent off to the forensic specialist, Chris Allen, who found that the cloth from the woods had the same jagged edges as the other cloth and matched up with the other strips. This is that, like, two-piece toddler puzzle that we talked about. But now we've moved on to three, uh, four, three or four pieces. Yeah, four pieces. Um, elementary kindergarten puzzle yeah but they do all totally match up i mean this guy yeah (laughs) like come on richard allen davis you can't you didn't have multiple pieces of cloth somewhere around your house or rip one to cut one i don't know he's just i'm glad he's an idiot yeah that's all i'll say it was determined that polly and richard allen davis had definitely been out there in those woods 
But they didn't have enough evidence to arrest him for kidnapping yet. Which is weird because what business does she have being with him in the woods? Exactly. So, yeah, it seems like that's a given. right? Yeah. I mean, I know there's like a lot that goes into the legal process that obviously we don't know about. It just. But at that point, it doesn't it's not circumstantial evidence. Right. I mean, it's like clearly there's evidence. Yeah. Physical evidence. Yeah. Yeah. Her some of her belongings were found there. They knew that he was there because the police, it's not even like somebody, an eyewitness was like, I saw a guy that looked like him. The police fucking ran his ID. Like they knew he was there and they found her stuff there and she's missing and he doesn't know her. Yeah. I mean, that's a little bit more complex than a toddler puzzle, but I think you can put the pieces together. Exactly. The pieces are together. Meese and Fryer wanted to get him arrested for something in order to get the rest of the evidence and hopefully get a confession out of him. And fortunately, Davis had a warrant out for his arrest for, get this, violating his parole by getting a DUI. Surprise. (laughs) On November 30th, 1993, Fryer and Meese went to his house to arrest him, but he wasn't there. However, a police officer who was securing the perimeter stopped a van, and when he checked the ID, he realized he had Davis right there in his clutches Ooh, yeah so the deputy said don't freak out <laughs> don't freak out i gotta get this right so he calmly called it in and then the authorities reported it to meese and fryer so meese and fryer show up meese asked davis to step out of the van and he was then just casually arrested by meese for violation of his parole He's like, oh, hey, man, um, you want to come to jail real quick? Or Yeah, he's like, I just, I have, I got a secret to tell you, I guess. So, like, get in really close. And then he's, like, slaps the handcuffs on him. And he's but, like, like, very calmly. Yeah, he's like, hey, I'm not hurting you, okay? <laughs> but also you're under arrest. Yeah, we got to go to jail, though, real quick, okay? Yeah. It, like, it's, they made a big deal about, we're being stupid, but they made a big deal about, like, how casual and <laughs> casual it was, but, like, that... He didn't, like, shove him on the ground and yell at him and beat him with a police baton or like whatever. arrested development. <laughs> they yeah. always... There's, like, 40 of them coming out beating yeah. him. <laughs> yeah, they, they said that it... They felt like that helped gain rapport with Davis, that they didn't just, like, come in guns blazing, basically. Yeah, like, we respect you. you. You're safe with us. That's fine. Yeah. Yuck. Kate and Jillian were brought in to look at a lineup, and they were able to pick out Davis without any trouble. And at this point, he didn't have his beard anymore. He just had, like, the handlebar mustache-looking deal. Oh. Right? I just I feel I bad so. for them, though, because can you imagine, I mean, how terrifying of, that yeah, would be? all that anxiety that they probably felt. and Yeah, even though he's, like, behind glass and they can't see you, it's still terrifying. To, like, You're come like, face-to-face with yeah. the man who abducted your friend and tied you up and all the things. So yeah, scary. exactly. And th- But as soon as they saw him, they were like, that's him. They picked him out no without the same beard that he had before. So they definitely knew it was him, which is something that you would not be able to do because when our dad shaved his beard, you were like, who is this man? (laughs) I was terrified of him for like weeks. (laughs) Well, until he grew his beard back, dad was like, I immediately just grew it back because you wouldn't let me go near you. She was a teeny tiny little child. Yeah, I was like three. (laughs) It wasn't like last weekend or anything. No. Yeah, I do. I put, I trust, I really trust men with beards. Yeah. As you should. Yeah. Andrew has a beard and some the other day he was like, I'm thinking about cutting it off. And I was like, we didn't talk about this. I'm not ready for this. Like I have to like mentally get ready for it. 
Well, it's an entire, it's a lifestyle change. Yeah, he's had a beard since I met him, so that's why. Well, Sometimes since you like, met him and since you made him have one. He didn't always have one. Well, no, not when he was a baby. Which is when y'all first started dating, basically. <laughs> so, on December 2nd, 1993, the FBI lab was comparing the palm print found at the scene with a print that was obtained from Davis upon his arrest. Fryer was called while he was at the command post with the tip line and the volunteers, and he was told the news that the prints match. And he said that he stood up and told all the people there that the print matched and they could finally place Davis in Polly's bedroom. And he said everybody stood up and cheered and were like, yeah, we got him. Yeah. <laughs> got harumph, him. Harumph. <laughs> yeah. Got that bastard. But that was when... It might it might have been here, I know we talked about it in the last episode, where they were showing the guy, like, basically counting, like, one, two, three, four, yep, same, same guy, same exact guy, like, the analysis of palm prints at that time, this guy did it, big time, big fat did it, right. like, we there's talked about no this last question, time, yeah. yeah, but it's just, it's kind of scary how, the human error and how it can, yeah, how it can just be like, yeah, that looks right to me, and how many times you hear the term in court this hair was consistent with the defendant's hair or the palm print was consistent with the palm print or whatever and as a jury member or even as somebody watching forensic files I'm like it was consistent that's a match Mm -hmm. like I thought that meant that was a direct match but when you think about even just the word consistent because you whenever I put it with something like that I'm like well that's fact it's black and white, no gray. But then if you like break it down, cause I, you know, sometimes you have like these terms that are thrown at you and you're just like, oh, okay, well that's, that's the way that it is. Yeah. But then if you think about it, consistent doesn't mean, Mm-mm. it means similar to, right. It's not 100%. Yeah. It means could be like, but they don't say that in a way that it sounds like when they say consistent with, for whatever reason, I think the general public views that as that means it's a match. Yeah, absolutely. In forensics. Mm-hmm. So it is, it can be scary. This guy did it, though. But I think that's a really nice message that you're trying to put out there. Yeah. Just just beware. Be careful. Yeah. Davis was questioned about the kidnapping on December 4th, 1993, and he vehemently denied that he was involved because of how... Here it comes. Because of how casually Meese had arrested him, though. <laughs> he had developed a rapport with Davis, and using this rapport, Meese was like, listen, guy, We've got physical evidence to make the case, and right now it's just kidnapping. If you want to talk to me, you just let someone know. <laughs> I like how you say that Meese was, like, that's the, like, term of endearment almost that he used, like, hey, guy. It's Actually, that was Sloan wrote that in there. So. Really? Yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny to me. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, hey, guy. I'm following the script here. <laughs> But she knows. She knows what he... She she could tell because of the rapport, because of that casual arrest. It's like, of course he's going to be like, listen, guy. We're buds. Like, yeah. This is, yeah. So he realized he didn't have a business card, though, Meese. But being just breezy as he could be... Sure. He said, listen, I'll just leave you my number, okay? I'll leave it with the commanding officers. And in case you want to talk, you just let them know and they'll call me. I'm breezy. I'm breezy. Leave me a message. Page me, sure. whatever you got to do. Fax me, I don't care. Call me, beat me if you want to reach me. Yep. Davis was in isolation in jail, and he hadn't heard any information about the case until he was visited by a friend. So his friend was encouraging him to talk to the police and tell him where Polly was. 
But Davis was like, I don't know where she is. I didn't take her. I didn't have any involvement. And then his friend showed him the newspaper from that day that said that the police had matched the prints to Davis in Polly's bedroom. So they knew that he was there. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, Davis, he didn't know that anything had been matched yet. And when he saw that, he was like, well, fuck, <laughs> I'm got. So he's like, um, beep, 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 beep. hey, Meese, um, I actually want to make a deal now because I fucked up pretty big time. That was his quote. He fucked up big time. <laughs> so Meese met with Davis in an interrogation room and... Davis did confess, and he went over the details of the night. So he said that he'd been living in Turning Point Shelter, which was a transitional living facility in San Mateo, California, since July of 93. Now, on the weekend of August 21st and 22nd, he had been visiting his sister and brother-in-law, and he bought his brother-in-law's 1979 Ford Pinto. So that's what he was driving at the time. And... To visit his brother and sister-in-law, or sorry, sister and brother-in-law, he would have, Petaluma was kind of like the the midpoint between those two, so maybe he'd stop through there coming back, and maybe he'd gone to Wickersham Park then or something. They don't really know why why he ended up where he ended up exactly, but... But his parents were in Petaluma too, right? His Yeah, his mom was in Petaluma. Okay. So, but I... It's it's not clear, but it doesn't seem that she lived right there. Okay, in the direct area. Yeah, so maybe he ended up in, like, Wickersham Park area just because he had passed through before. So I don't know. But maybe he still had beers to drink, and he was just still trying to get the beers out. You know what I mean? Just driving around. Yeah, he definitely had lots of beers. Yeah. To drink. Maybe he was listening to Led Zeppelin. He had to get the lead out. We don't know. How many pots had he smoking? I don't know. <laughs> So he applied for an overnight pass to find his mom in Petaluma. But when he got there, he couldn't find his mom's house. So he just like wandered around the neighborhood, which was Polly's neighborhood. And he had some beers. He said he was stopped by a guy who offered to sell him weed. And he was like, sure, man, I'll buy, I'll buy a joint. So he said he got really buzzed, but he thinks the joint had PCP in it as well. And then he went to the store for more beer. Then he want to keep that buzz going. Yeah. I I don't know what it's like to be on PCP, but I feel like that's a direct contradiction, basically, Mm. to weed. Like, doesn't PCP, like, amp you the fuck up? I don't know what's a downer and an upper. I really don't know. I would think. I'm not sure. I feel like, because isn't PCP the stuff that people are on when they, like, lift cars over their head and shit? Like criminals that get like insane salt i don't know yeah it's pcp makes people like have superhuman strength i think is pcp what charles manson gave all of his or was that lsd no it was lsd it was lsd okay um but i've seen episodes of cops with people on pcp and they're just like ripping like when you say cops like bad boys bad boys what you gonna do cops oh yeah okay oh yeah and the people on pcp are like superhuman strength that takes them like eight cops to take somebody down and oh shit. whatever and like four tasers and stuff yeah wow. so that's the extent of my knowledge on pcp but i just feel like it would be in direct opposition with weed where you're just like i just want to chill like eat some sun chips your like, poor like nervous system i know 
Yeah. And then and then he's drinking beers on top of that. <laughs> Eat some sun chips. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds delicious. I know. Sun chips are like never good, but I feel like if you're high, you're like, okay, yeah, this is delicious. <laughs> Funny. Um so here's the thing though. What's he said thing? he's just wandering around. He's just kind of lot. He's looking for his mom's house. He's only looking for his mom's house. Why he doesn't like get to a payphone and call her, we don't know. I don't know if she was expecting him or not. But he's just wandering around. <laughs> like, he, are you my mother? <laughs> he can't find her, except that he had come prepared with a bag. So remember, everybody saw a man carrying either a box yes. or a duffel bag. Yes. So during this time, he's carrying this duffel bag. Now, what is in this duffel bag? You ask. He's got bindings. Okay. He's got tape. He's got scissors, which is what he used to cut the strips of fabric. Right. Like, why would he need that if he was just looking for his mom's house? Exactly. Why? That duffel bag should have his, like, toothbrush and his hairbrush, maybe, and his overnight clothes. It shouldn't be, like, his... uh, Like, kill kit. Yeah. And that's exactly what he carried with him. So, I think that he just was using... The mom story as a, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. What's a reason that I can say I'm going to go back there? Here's the reason I can say, and just no intent of finding his mom's house at all. Wow. So he randomly picked a house, which mm-hmm. is terrifying. Mm-hmm. He just climbs in through the window. He said he heard TV voices, and he may have picked up a knife in the kitchen. <laughs> then he says he doesn't remember anything. Until he's back in his car and he's driving. And then all of a sudden he looks over and he sees a girl in his passenger seat and she's crying. And he has no idea how she got there at all. Then he said that Polly complained that her hands were tingling. So he adjusted her straps. And then he drove around wondering what he'd done and what to do next. So while he's just thinking about it, he ends up driving off the road and he got his car stuck. He said he got out to free his car and realized how badly he was stuck, that he wasn't going to be able to get out. Then he said he got Polly out of the car. He carried her up a steep embankment about 30 yards away, and he planned to just leave her there in the darkness until he could figure out how to free his car. Just leave her there. None of this makes any sense. Doesn't make any damn sense. At this point, the rest of his story matches the stories of the witnesses from that night um, and Dana Jaffe's you know, report of seeing somebody on our property and that kind of stuff. So we know the police show up and all that stuff. But at the time of the encounter between the police and Davis, there was a bulletin sent out about Polly, about a missing girl. But the police that stopped him or that were called to that scene were on a different radio frequency than the other police officers were on. So they didn't hear it. Had they heard it, they probably would have been like, the fuck are you doing here? You're just a couple miles away from where a girl was just taken. Your car is stuck because his story doesn't line up. He says he's out sightseeing in the middle of the fucking night right. on private property. Like none the of it makes fact sense. That that excuse or story happens multiple times between multiple cases of like, oh, it's just sightseeing. It's like it's the middle of the fucking night. Why do people use that? It doesn't make any sense. It's so weird. And then when they ran his driver's license it came back clean because they're only able to run his driving record and not his criminal record so there's all these things that had it 
had it just gone the other way or had they gotten just a little bit more information. It's like exactly Wesley Allen Dodd. Yes. So he continues his retelling saying the deputies helped him get his car free and escorted him to the main road. Then he says he waited about 15 to 30 minutes for them to for sure go away. And then he went to find Polly back on this hill that he left her on. That is so crazy to me that they were right there. If, if it's true. Right. Well, it's not, but. Right. But yeah. you know what I mean? Like, right. they were yeah. so that, close. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense at all. Like, if she was alive, especially, depends on how far it was, I guess. But if it's that dark, you're going to see the police light. She would have been screaming her ass off. And I would think if she was that close and it's, you know, the middle of the night, I would think that voices would carry enough to for her to be able to hear yeah, or she would have run away. Like, right? She would have just started hands walking. Are only bound, not her feet. That's the way he made it sound. And he's talking that he left. So during the time that the police are there, we don't know exactly how long that is. But then he says he waits another fifteen to thirty minutes before he goes back. She would have had like thirty, forty-five minutes, an hour. She could have gotten pretty far away from him. Mm-hmm. There's no way he was going to leave her unattended like mm-hmm. that. So he said once he got back to her, he maintained she was alive. He gets her back in the car. He said he drove around in order to figure out what to do with her. And then he realized that he was just going to have to get rid of her because at this point she's seen his face. If she turns him in, he's going to go back to jail. He doesn't want to go back to jail. So he's like, well, I'm just going to have to get rid of her. So he said he strangled her with a piece of cloth and then he cinched a piece of cord around her neck just to be sure. And he said it took forever. Mm. It was awful. That poor girl. I mean, it's a really, really, it's a cute story that he's telling, but it's fucking bullshit. Like, there's yeah. no way it doesn't that any make of that any happened sense. the way that it happened. Like, I believe that he went there, and I think you do too, looking for a victim and... Or he went there. He knew what he was doing. It was not like he blacked out and came to. Because even if that happens, you still have every, uh, like, every availability or whatever you call it, um, opportunity to be like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing here. I just want to be done with this. Like, let me just let her go. Yeah, just drop her off somewhere. Let her go. Exactly. Yeah. You knew exactly what you were doing. And the fact that he's committed kidnappings before, I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. So he did agree to take the detective to the site where he'd left Polly's body. And when they were talking to him about it, it was nighttime and they knew it would be difficult to find the exact spot, but they didn't want to wait. So they were like, let's just go now. So Davis took the police to a field near an abandoned lumber mill where they found Polly's body under some boards. On December the 6th, 1993, Petaluma Police Sergeant Meese, an FBI agent, questioned Davis again and confronted him with evidence that he had sexually assaulted Polly before killing her oh my gosh because you know they found that condom there and they couldn't be a hundred percent sure that anything had happened necessarily but they really believed that it did because it seemed like that would have been the motive part of the motive at least sergeant meese told him that they'd found semen during during an examination of polly's remains And Davis asked where specifically the semen was found. 
is weird. That is really weird. And Sergeant Meese said on the body. And Davis continued not in her, though. He denied sexually assaulting Polly. And when Meese asked, okay, well, even if it's not, like, how did the semen get there? It's anywhere near her body. Not a sexual assault. <laughs> yeah, if there was no sexual assault. And he said, look, I told you at least it wasn't in her. So basically, he says, look, I told you at least it wasn't in her. And then what he said after this, I don't feel that I can say out loud, but he was basically saying that he he doesn't think that he raped her, but I don't want to... I don't want to say how he worded it because it's disgusting. When the questioning continued, Davis responded, that's something that I'm going to have to live with and run through my mind over and over and over again. He claimed that it was a load off his mind and he was glad when they told him the semen was found on Polly, but not necessarily in her because he didn't want that hanging over him. So he's still kind of trying to act like he doesn't exactly know what happened. He's like, it's like they're telling him and he's hearing for the first time. Even though he was there and committing these acts. Yeah, it was him that did it. And he's like, oh, thank God. Okay. I, I don't know what he thinks that means, though. Does he know where semen comes from? Like, what does he think happened? I, it doesn't make any sense. Davis was concerned that he would get beat up in prison if other inmates considered him a child killer and a molester. So, basically, he was just like, it, obviously, it's for him it's oh. his benefit but he doesn't want to get beat up if he's a child molester so he's really hoping that they're not going to find anything that ties him to that at the end of the interview he said i have to see what comes comes out of the forensics i hope nothing comes up i hope nothing's in there fucking nut job yeah really the case wouldn't go to trial until 1996 evidence was presented that showed that the fibers from the carpet in davis's car were found in Polly's room, and these fibers were also found in Polly's hair. Other evidence included hairs from Davis that had been found in Polly's bedroom. The defense called Dr. Park Elliott Dietz, a clinical professor of psychiatry in the biobehavioral sciences at the University of California, Los Angeles School of Medicine. Dr. Dietz testified that Davis suffered from paraphilia, which is a sexual disorder classified by a continuing preference for some unusual sexual object. That means that individuals can be aroused sexually by people of the wrong age, by objects that are not people, or activities that are unusual or harmful. What? Yeah. That's a broad... It is very broad. Yeah. The doctor also stated that there was a deviation from this called cordophilia, where the person prefers their sexual partner to be bound and kept subservient. So that's a little more specific. Mm -hmm. um, but the paraphilia, do you remember that show? Um, I don't remember the name of the show where it was like, I don't know, just strange things. Like people would have obsessions with weird stuff, but the one guy who... My Strange Obsession? Maybe. Like, some of them, like, ate toilet paper or yeah. whatever. Okay. So the one guy, every time he popped a balloon, he would have an orgasm. Oh, my. Yeah. And he would pop balloon. I mean, a lot. And they're, like, I mean, he's fully clothed doing it, but he would, like, go to different places and just bring a bunch of balloons with him. And then he'd pop them and you'd watch him, like, shudder. And I'm, like, <gasps> Ugh. 
It was disgusting. That's too um, intimate for me. I don't like it. Yeah. Mm-mm. I was like, are Mm-mm. you really showing? Like, this is weird. Yeah, to each their own, but that's uh, not something that I want to n- necessarily be a part of, Mm-mm-mm-mm. you know? Yeah. So I feel wow. like that's that would be considered a paraphilia. Yeah. I think it was my strange obsession or my strange, um, God, it was my strange something, mm-hmm. but it was like um, addiction, my strange addiction. Okay. I think is what it yeah, was. Yeah, because some people ate like uh Laundry detergent. Yes. Yeah. Cat litter. They like would eat. They would. Jeez. Yeah. We can get into, I mean, there's a ton of them and they're really, really weird. And I don't want to say weird. They're interesting. Well, dangerous to your health. Not here to judge. Yeah. And then at the end of it, they'd be like, here's what this is going to do to you. Like if you continue to eat the laundry detergent, you will die. They're like, well, I'm not dead yet. (laughs) I mean, I guess it's the same thing like smoking cigarettes. People are like, well gotta live if it doesn't kill you it makes you stronger i guess yeah i don't know interesting (laughs) the defense concedes that davis did kill polly but that there was not sufficient evidence to say that he sexually assaulted her they also prevented davis's oops they also presented davis's parole officer as a witness to prove that he'd been checking in and could not have visited petaluma as often as the prosecution claimed he did before the kidnapping and it seems like the defense is really, of course, they can't deny that he killed her or that he, he was the one who did it, but they're trying to humanize him or something. Well, they're trying to kind of like minimize the severity of it. They're really, really, really trying to go after that sexual assault and just make sure that that part doesn't stick. I don't know if it's because of the sentencing or whatever, but they're also trying to prove that there wasn't premeditation to commit a crime, that he was just wandering around. It just happened basically. But the fact that he was carrying that duffel bag with him, the fact that he cut the cloth up into strips beforehand, and that was his words, not anybody else's. Like that's not premeditation. I don't know what is. Yeah. That shows intent right there. And also I'm not saying that character witnesses are not valuable or makes sense for a lot of different people but for this guy in particular it's like really yeah like I don't know he's human he's a person whatever but he's kind of the worst kind of guy to me like I don't know yeah I mean just because he checked in on a pretty regular basis with his parole officer doesn't mean that on during the times he's not checking in he's not doing absolutely horrible stuff I mean he was in prison, and the moment he escaped, he went and committed a bunch of criminal acts. Like, but who, he are, did check who in. are you when nobody's looking? Yeah, but, yeah. He, but he did check in. During the penalty phase of the trial, psychiatrist George Woods testified that based on the interviews with Davis and a review of his records, Davis was diagnosed with avoidant personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, and schizoid personality disorder. He also testified that Davis has an average intelligence based on two IQ tests. So it wasn't that it was below average or that he had a learning disability or anything like that. They said he was pretty average. The prosecution called witnesses from the halfway house Davis had been living in prior to the kidnapping. They stated that Davis was very sociable, but that he also admitted to manipulating the system by faking mental illness so that he could be moved into a mental health facility, making it easier to escape. Great. The prosecution also called their own psychiatrist, Leon T. Thompson, who had previously examined Davis in 1978 for a, for a court-ordered mental evaluation. 
This psychiatrist disagreed with Dr. Woods, claiming that Davis only showed signs for antisocial personality disorder. But the last time that he evaluated him was in 78. Mm-hmm. I don't know what kind of um, advances psychiatry has, ha- you know, they've yeah. gained in the years, but from 78 to 96, like that's... Yeah, we've got 20 years or... Yeah, 20 years. Yeah, that's a big leap. Like, who knows? And maybe as people progress, like some some personality disorders or some mental health issues show up later in life, you know? Yeah, that's very true. They do. And especially if he's not getting treated for anything, it could, I, it would, I would think it would get worse. Yeah. Yeah. The defense also tried to claim that Davis was severely abused as a child, but the prosecution discredited this as well by bringing in a clinical therapist and forensic psychologist who said that while Davis had been abused, he hadn't been abused to the point that he would have committed the crimes he'd been convicted of and that Davis's own brother disagrees that their childhood was to blame. In fact, Davis's brothers had grown up and become stable adults. One, a highway patrol officer who studied law and later became a tribal magistrate in Nevada, and the other in a stable marriage and employed in a good job, which I don't know how much that there are plenty of people who have awful childhoods and go on to be good people. There are plenty of people who have great childhoods and go on to be horrible people. There are plenty of families who have however many siblings that come out well-adjusted, can hold a job down for a long time, do not commit violent acts, and one sibling becomes a serial killer. I mean, when you study serial killers or people who commit violent crimes, typically they don't come from a family of them. That's very rare that you've got more than one person in a family who's a murderer, usually. Right. So, I mean, I don't know. I I don't know that that tells you whether or not he was abused. I think that whether or not he was abused, either way, he's dangerous to be in society. Right. So that's that's the point. It's almost like a a moo point. The point is moo. (laughs) Exactly. Just like a cow's opinion, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Exactly. After 10 weeks in court, the jury found Davis guilty on 10 counts, including kidnapping, robbery, burglary, murder, and attempting to commit a lewd act on a child. Of all of this, Davis continued to deny the lewd act. And after he heard the verdict that he was found guilty, he looked at news cameras he flipped him the bird, he winked and blew him a kiss. Oh my. Yeah. So investigators believe that despite his testimony, no matter how much he denied it, denied it, denied it, that Polly was already dead when the police helped him with his car. So they think that what happened was he had pulled off there to try to dispose of her body and then he got caught basically. So he had already gone up to put her body somewhere. And then when he came back down, he was trying to get his car out. And then I guess because of everything that happened, he went back and moved her body. He did not leave a live Polly up by herself on a hill with police all around for like an hour. Mm -hmm. Doesn't make any sense. No. Davis was sentenced to the death penalty and is currently still on death row in San Quentin State Prison in California. Maybe he's friends with Scott Peterson. Mm. They're buds. Um, but this was horrible. So I don't know if this was during the sentencing hearing or when it was, but 
the um, Davis had a chance to speak, and he said that. I now have one last statement to make. To Eve Nichols and her family, for what it's worth, I do offer my sincere apology. To certain members of the Kloss family, I also offer the same. Though I do find it very puzzling that the tip provided by Kamika Milstead in her testimony was never followed up on concerning the description of the man and his car that I had talked to that night. I would also like to state for the record that the main reason I know that I did not attempt any lewd act that night was because of a statement the young girl made to me when walking her up the embankment. Just don't do me like my dad. I have to pay my dues, and so should Burn you. Burn in hell, Davis. All right, that concludes the statement. Uh, just to uh, reiterate, uh, <laughs> Jacobs, do you have any uh, comments you want to make? And there was like an audible like gasp in the gallery. Like everybody was like, <gasps> like, are you fucking kidding me? Like after all this, he's going to turn around and be like, oh, and her dad was was molesting her. What is even the point of throwing out an accusation like that? Exactly. Like what? It doesn't make any sense. It was horrible. And he was like, look, I've done my time now. Now he's got to do his or whatever. I put in my time or whatever. Um, and poor Mark Class sat there for a second, like stunned. And then he jumps up and lunges and is like, you motherfucker, and tries to go after him and people hold him, you know, back or whatever. And then after that, he gave a statement like to the press outside and he said that he regretted the words that he used, but he couldn't believe, you know, what happened. I don't think I wouldn't hold him responsible or accountable for anything that he said in that moment. Like yeah. That's... Yeah. Davis is fucking very lucky that Mark Class didn't like bring a weapon in with him or something and fucking take his ass out. Like, mm -hmm. that's horrible. I mean, I guess Mark is lucky he didn't do that either because it's like that moment of sheer rage would have you know followed him, landed for the rest him of his in jail life, absolutely but i mean what do you do when somebody does i mean it's just that's it's that's so fucking terrible yeah and so out of left field like who when you're caught off guard like that for sure and the just the the magnitude of that kind of accusation it's like that is the mm -hmm. worst thing that he could have because they already have to deal with the fact that their daughter is gone exactly and the fucking audacity to be like Okay, I killed her. I kidnapped her, but I have the I had the compassion for her or whatever because she told me that she'd been abused by her father, so she just doesn't want me to do that to her too and I'm like, "Okay, I'll stop there. Like here's where I draw the line." Like, well, fuck and you. It's like, you know, when a when somebody gets in trouble and then like, "Oh, but he did it too." Mhm. Mm you know, like just deflecting blame. Yeah, who the fuck are That's you? Fucking asshole. So because of this tragedy, though, so like we said, a lot of laws were changed. So one of them is that law enforcement databases are now linked to multiple agencies providing information from different jurisdictions. Missing persons bulletins are now sent all over all police channels. So instead of it just being, I think before it was only on like the highway patrol or like the state patrol or whatever. So now all of them get it that way. Something like that doesn't happen again, where police are completely unaware that a missing person 
or like a child is missing and now they've stopped somebody that probably has the kid with them. Like, um, at routine pullovers and traffic stops, police had no access to the criminal records like we talked about, but now they have access to both driving history and criminal records. So had those police been able to access that instead of him just lying and being like, I'm not on parole and I've never been arrested, they would have been able to see that he was lying about that too. Yeah, and had an extensive rap sheet. Yeah, and and this was the beginning of the three strikes and you're out legislation. So if this had been in place then, of course, Davis would have never been able to kidnap Polly because he already had three violent crimes in his rap sheet. Like he'd already kidnapped, he'd been convicted of burglary with a weapon and all of these things, assault. Like he'd been convicted of a lot of stuff. So he definitely would have been already in jail for life at that point. And Polly never would have gone missing or been murdered. But this, the three strikes and you're out, like Mark class started pushing for that big time. Like he started like lobbying and going and really trying to make those changes in California adopted it initially to the point where it didn't even have to be a violent offense. They they were saying any offense, like what they considered to be serious. But their definition of serious was so broad that it could include anything like petty theft or drug crimes or whatever. And so Mark actually ended up pulling his support for that law because he was like, I'm not trying to get a shit ton of people in jail for stuff that... I don't want to put people away for life for doing these petty little things where they're not hurting anybody, you know, like just crimes that are not violent. He's like, the whole point of this was for violent crime. And a lot of states took it to that level, violent crime. But they've since revised the law and it is now violent crimes because they were even saying, okay, well, if you've got two violent crimes on your record, your third one, it doesn't have to be violent or, you know, just whatever we deem serious and now you're in jail for life, It it's a slippery slope, I guess. So they ended up revising it, and now it does, it does pertain to violent crimes, heavier level things. But this was really, this case was the impetus for that um, because it was just, could have been, could have been completely prevented with that law alone because Davis wouldn't have been out on the streets. The Poly Class Foundation was created, and it's dedicated to keeping children safe in a number of ways, including helping finding missing children and focus on public policies to keep children safe. If you want to learn more about that foundation, you can visit polyclass.org. And uh, Mark is still the head of that organization. Um, Eve, Polly's mom, ended up reconciling with her husband uh Annie's father and they got back together because they were separated at that time because she was just there with the kids by herself they ended up reconciling they're they're still married they're doing okay excuse me Eve is on the board of this organization uh with Mark and Mark heads it up and he's been remarried uh for a while as well so they're, they've both been able to move on in, in what way that they can, and they've both been able to make some positive changes. I think Mark was instrumental in helping get the Amber Alert passed as well. 
Um, so he works with other families of other victims and things like that to try to get laws passed and, you know, help them in their search for their children and things like that. But I mean, it's just a horrible, it's a horrible thing for anybody to go through. I just can't imagine, you know, she's 12 years old, but what great parents to lobby for all of these big changes to make sure that this doesn't happen to another family. Exactly. Yeah. They're like, they're putting the needs of, you know, or the, the greater good out there, Mm -hmm. you know, they're putting that, making that a priority. So it's selfless. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So that's it. Well, very, very sad, but something really amazing has come from it. So, yeah. So definitely check out uh, their organization if you want to learn more. And as always, we love you guys. And don't forget, if you want a free sticker, you can leave us a review, screenshot it, and email it to us at killerqueenspodcast at gmail.com. And we'll mail the bitch out. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for listening. And we hope to catch you on the next episode. Yep. See you then. Bye. Bye. Get in on the conversation on Facebook and Instagram at Killer Queens Podcast and join our Facebook discussion group at Killer Queens Podcast where we discuss cases covered on the show and all things 90s. If you want to submit a case to be covered on the show, visit www.killerqueenspodcast.com slash case submission and complete the form. If we cover the case, we'll even give you a shout out on the show. Killer Queens is researched, mixed, and mastered by our own damn selves. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. And our logo was created by Sloane Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Lilas! As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.